Well, a very good morning to you. Uh, the plan, if you might call it such for the summer, is that uh, different members of the teaching team have been asked choose a favorite psalm. And uh, I was lucky, I was one of the ones who got in first and uh, chose Psalm 139. There was a little bickering from one or two other members of the team who complained that I'd taken that because they wanted it, but tough early birds and so on. Um, <laughs> so <clears throat> Psalm 139 is uh, uh, a wonderful poetic psalm, inviting God to look in the closest possible way into our hearts and guide and lead us. We functioning? Oh, good. It's so good. Um, now, you've been told, many of you, that when you look at Scripture, you should think about who it was written to, first of all, and who it was by, and stuff like that. Uh, that's not going to take too long. So the setting for this psalm is uh, that it's uh, headed in the Hebrew, le David, which means to, or from, or by, or somehow in association with David. In the old translations, they were headed up as uh, psalms that had that as being a psalm of David. It doesn't actually tell us much at all. Uh, some scholars say this is somebody who's been acquitted of something naughty. Some scholars say that the Aramaisms in the language reflect Babylon. So basically, uh, whatever you want to think, you can think. It might have been written about a thousand years before Jesus. It might have been 500 years before Jesus. But the dating of it is not actually that important. What is important is that in God's uh, wonderful releasing of his heart and mind to us, it's something that can strengthen us. And it's a psalm that I, I love uh, for two reasons. Uh, one is half of the congregation will know this, which is that in our nice new toilets, uh, there's a sign that says, uh, whether I stand up or sit down, you know my thoughts. Um, so as somebody who by virtue of his age qualifies for frequent user status, um, it, it's a verse that I see quite frequently. But I've also been reflecting this year that it's uh, 50 years since I first went to a church in South London as a committed atheist and started a dialogue with people and exploring faith in Jesus and going to an evening meeting for four and a half years until the time when I chose to become a follower of Jesus. And the things that shaped me were, firstly, the love that those people had, which was wonderful, and secondly, when I started to look in Scripture uh, at the person of Jesus, how that was, but also, um, we were singing songs like How Great Thou Art. That was nostalgic for me. And also a song I think may have been written by a friend of mine called Paul Field. I can't, can't trace it. But it had a refrain within it about even there your hand will find me. So uh, if you want the secrets about how one of those turns into one of these, it's all to do with encountering God. Um, so some of you might think it's a retrograde step, but there you go. So as we, as we look at Psalm 139, um, that sort of reflection has prompted me to, to want to look through the text with you in, in two ways. It's an invitation to God, but I want to look at it from the point of view of those who are seeking and exploring faith. I'm fresh back from two weeks at New Wine, where I was uh, leading uh, a ministry, which is one of my great joys every year, called Just Looking for People Who've Been Dragged onto the new wine site by a believing partner and talking faith with them. So an invitation, what does the psalm look like for somebody who is seeking or exploring faith? And what does the psalm look like for somebody who is a follower of God or a follower 
of Jesus. Um, the psalmist clearly follows God and is sold out on God, but there's stuff for all of us. So uh, we'll look at the whole text. There's uh, four chunks of six verses, neatly divided up in preparation for the preacher. Um, the psalmist didn't give it alliterative titles, but where he failed, I've stepped in. And uh, <laughs> the first six verses go something like this. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. If we start thinking about those first six verses, uh, I want to put it under the heading of the intimacy of God. Because many people who look at this psalm uh, instinctively, maybe, if they've had some sort of training, start to categorize the thinking there with poncy theological terms, to use a poncy theological term. Uh, so they say that this is a psalm in which the omniscience, the all-knowing of God, or the omnibenevolence, the all-loving uh, nature of God, or the omnipresence of God is described. The first thing we need to understand, and thinking initially from the perspective of the seeker, is that this is talking about the nature of God, not as uh, theory, not as doctrine, not as academic, not as ideas, not as concepts, but in terms of the heart nature of God. And that, looking back, is why that song, the words of this psalm put to music, connected to me, because uh, as a teenager, I was quite cerebral. I fancied myself to be an intellectual. Uh, I was doing a lot of reading about different world faiths and trying to understand them. And somehow this psalm in its sung form uh, got under my skin. So I began to realize that despite a lot of what I had been taught about Christian faith uh, in my years thus far, the nature of God was to be relational. Uh, and that comes as, as quite a breakthrough, sometimes for those of us who are seeking towards faith. Back in the 60s, uh, many of us then thought that we were finding God. I moved from biker to hippie a couple of years later. So uh, we were finding God. And sometimes I reflect on the account in John's Gospel where a couple of disciples rush off and say, hey, we found the Messiah, entirely missing the fact that actually the Messiah had found them. And back in those days, people were saying, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to find God. But the reality is that God is finding us. Now, if it is the nature of God to be, intimacy and, uh, to be intimate and to be relational, that means for those of us who are coming towards faith, there is no need for us to pretend to be something that we're not. Though instinctively, we always put up a front. We put up a front even within families to those who are our significant others. We put up a front in terms of social life and social media and work environment and education. And so instinctively, we tend to do the same thing with God. Uh, we tend to approach this God that we are trying to find out about uh, on the basis that um, there might be some things we can find out about him 
without understanding properly that he knows absolutely everything that there is to know about us. And if God has that depth of insight into our nature and our character, then there's no need to pretend to be something else. It's just foolishness. Why pretend to be different when God can see deep into our innermost hearts? And that means that as we seek God, we can be realistic about who we are and what we are. Uh, All of us carry a sense of having failed to be what we could be, uh, which in terms of philosophy is sometimes thought of as being an estrangement, an existential problem. How is it that we fall so far short of what we could be? And in Bible terms is thought of as a breakdown of relationship with God, which is why stories like the story of the prodigal son speak so powerfully to our hearts, because relationship is being restored. So we can be realistic about the fact that we are not what we could be. It doesn't mean that we have to beat ourselves up in language of sin, but if it helps, do it. What it means is that we can eliminate any drive towards having to achieve what we need to achieve in order to come into relationship with God. Uh, One of my um, jobs over the last 10 years has been to teach religious studies and philosophy, including uh, teaching GCSE, Islam, and A-level Buddhism. And um, so it's, it's from an informed point that, say, one of the very simple differences between following Jesus and the whole world of religion is this, that by and large, it is a simplification, but there's a truth in it. Other faiths are telling us what we need to do to attain contact with God, to make contact with God, to find the secret to life eternal, or in terms of the Eastern religions with the samsaric cycle of life and death and rebirth, how to break free from that cycle. But it's all to do with how we can get there, how we can reach the uh, unattainable, the disciplines that have to be followed, the rules that have to be fulfilled. And our faith in Jesus is so wonderfully and radically different. Because Jesus has come as the embodiment of the intimacy of the Father, not to tell us what we have to achieve to get there, because the Father sees into our hearts and he knows how much we've messed up. Jesus comes to bring the message that God, in our personal disaster area, has reached down to where we are to lift us up out of that mess. The intimacy of God. If you're seeking faith, Understand that your father is somebody who cares deeply, knows every part of your life, every part of your living, everything that you're doing, everything that is any part of you. He knows and he loves you. Somebody famously said, there's nothing you can ever do that will make God love you less or make God love you more. That intimate knowledge of God for us eliminates the need for achievement. So if we then sort of swap over to the home team, you know, uh, about intimacy uh, of God in terms of those who are already followers, uh, which is the category that the psalmist is in, there are some wonderful, wonderful things in knowing that intimacy of God. Uh, Perhaps one of the most important is the sense of security. Uh, We are all designed, we're told, to seek security, significance, and self-worth, and knowing that there is a God who looks at every part of us and yet loves us is so wonderful for our sense of security. Now, I I know some of us 
struggle with a feeling that we recognize academically that God loves everybody else, but somehow deep inside we fear or feel that we might be the single exception to that rule. If, if that's you, uh, please, can we pray with you later in the service and, and just allow God to help to erode some of that false perception? But there is security. And then here's something I think is absolutely fantastic. Even though I'm a Baptist minister by training, uh, I believe in confession. Um, and this knowledge of God of who we are and where we are makes the whole process of confession much simpler. And if I had to be able to remember everything that I had done wrong, uh, and yeah, my whole life would be spent in confession. But what I can do is, is rest in this knowledge and say, Father, you know I have done it again. You know I've loused up again. Please may I come back into your embrace. And for us, as we continually restore our reconciliation relationally with God, that produces, as it does for the writer of this psalm, just awe and adoration. So we have a psalm here which starts and finishes with, firstly, uh, God, you have searched me. And at the end of the psalm, search me and know my inmost thoughts. Great way to go, point one. Now on to point two. If, if you have not absorbed these truths about the intimacy of God, you might find all this stuff about what God knows about you uh, and find it quite scary. And how much does God watch and see and understand? There's a rather sweet story of a Christian school where on the way into the canteen was a sign saying, do not take more than one apple, God is watching. Somebody had added a second sign at the end of the queue over the cookies saying, God's watching the apples, help yourself to the cookies. <laughs> but the, the issue of actually getting into our understanding that God sees absolutely everything. Unless we accompany that with a deep and a real recognition of his love and care for us, of his father's love, of his embrace, of his welcome, then the urge can be to escape. So there's something like this that unfolds in the thinking of the psalmist. Firstly, he says, absolutely everything about me is known to God. And, and maybe it's you as well as me, one of the instinctive responses, oh no, if he knows everything, how can I get away? Next six verses. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. For those who are seeking faith, can I say to you very simply and openly, um, trying to escape is futile. <laughs> yeah? uh, God, who loves you, knows every part of your life, even those things of which you are most deeply ashamed. I was talking with somebody two weeks ago who was, who was saying to me, oh, if you knew the things that I'd done. Well, I've been a pastor most of my life, and I know the things that people do. And I've heard the most astonishing stories of uh, um, pain and suffering. And you know, I, I've had friends who have killed 
Um, I've had friends who've been involved in the most horrendous um, spiritual sin in satanic activity. Uh, I've had friends uh, who have stolen enormous amounts of money, uh, friends who've done wrong in so many ways. Um, yet truthfully, uh, for me as a pastor, for Gareth, for Tim, there's nothing that anyone can say that can shock us about what can happen, about what can go wrong in our lives. And remember what I was saying just now, nothing that you can do can make God love you any less. And so this beautiful poetic writing talks about how impossible it is to escape from the heights of heaven to the depths. As you're probably aware, in the ancient world, people thought of what is described as a triple-decker universe. Heaven upstairs, uh, dark, gloomy place down in the basement, and we're here on, on the ground floor. Uh, and uh, you may have come across the word Sheol, which comes here. One of the few Old Testament references to the afterlife. Not a developed concept of heaven and hell, um, but simply a place where spirits go. Uh, just thought to be shady and dark and dim and strange. So at the theological college where I, I trained in Oxford, uh, there was underneath the main building uh, a place where the laundry was done, which was dark and hot and steamy, and known affectionately amongst the students as Sheol, because it was this place down there where everything was dark and hot and steamy. So from, from the heavens to the depths, God can find us. Uh, there's this beautiful poetic phrase um, about if I rise on the wings of the dawn, start a question for 10, where's the dawn? East. Thank you. Well done. You're sharp and on the case. If I settle on the far side of the sea, if you're living in Israel, which way is the Mediterranean? West. So from east to west, everywhere. Uh, in darkness and in light, wherever I choose to go, there is the infinite presence of God. But remember, it is not the infinite presence of God as some abstract theological concept. It is the knowledge that wherever we go, God is there for us. And so as we look across at the experience of the one who is a follower, I just so much love singing as we sang earlier. There's no wall you won't kick down, no mountain you won't climb up running after me anywhere. God will go to find us and reach to us. So we recognize as followers that this infinite presence of God is not to us a threat, but it is a security. And the passage explains that what this is going to mean is that even there, your hand will guide me. Uh, guidance is there. Even there, your protection. There's nowhere where you can go where you are out of range of the infinite love of the Father. Now, certainly, uh, we all encounter times in our life where we cannot sense or experience that contact. And sometimes that can be prolonged. Sometimes it can be made much, much worse by mental illness. Sometimes it's harder on us because of our particular way that we are wired and our personality. So I'm not offering you an easy reach out and find the security of God in three easy steps thing. Uh, anyone who's followed Jesus for any length of time will know it's far more complex than that. But I am underlining for you this reality that the infinite love of God is our security and guidance and protection. So 
On to section three. You created my inmost being. There's a quick note on the Hebrew here. Kidneys and bowels. Yes. Just in case you didn't know, that's how the language works. So for your significant other, remember to gaze passionately into their eyes and say, I love you from the depths of my kidneys and bowels. Right. You created my inmost being. You knit me together. Again, the language is wonderful. Um, it's actually language of embroidery. The, the beautiful crafting of the way that we are. Reminds me of uh, Corrie ten Boom, those of you who know her story, who talked about our life as being a tapestry that God embroiders. And we see all the tacky ends that are on the wrong side. And uh, uh, God is seeing the beauty of what he's creating on the right side. And uh, we have a guest here from the Netherlands. If you go just north of Amsterdam to Corrie ten Boom's um, house where she used to live, uh, on display there, as well as having the chance to step into the hiding place and pose for your selfie, uh, there is also the tapestry, one of the tapestries that she referred to in her thinking and writing, showing uh, those tacky ends and the beautiful finished product. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, that's in the womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So, third point, individuality of the way in which we're made. Um, and God, having, having been described in terms of the uh, intimacy, and having been described in terms of infinity, uh, now that the psalmist is taking us back in time and forward in time, because of the love of God covers every part of who we are. And the language, of course, is poetic. Um, so what is being affirmed here is that God is the source of everything that I am that makes me human. Um, that doesn't mean, for example, in, in my case, that when God was designing me, he thought it would be a rather neat trick to make me susceptible to asthma, diabetes, and congestive heart failure. And in that sense, God has designed every part of who I am. We live in a broken and damaged world, and sometimes our physical or mental or emotional structure is damaged as part of that. So God, when we affirm that God has made us, we're not saying that God has purposely constructed some of the imperfections that come with a damaged life. What is being affirmed is our uniqueness before the Father. Um, and that means for a follower that we know God's personal care for us. And we know to value others. Uh, some of you will be aware that pro-life people turn to this verse quite often. And we rightly find in this part of the scriptures an affirmation of the sanctity of life. And a declaration that our future is guarded. Now, so far so good. We've done 18 verses. We've got six to go. And uh, we've now reached the part where um, most people, if they're producing this as their Old Testament psalm for Sunday worship, will skip four of the following six verses because they start to get gruesome. If you've got your Bible open in front of you, you know it gets rather, rather tricky. Um, so uh, here comes a sense of shock and horror 
but an authentic reading and exposition of Scripture, needs to deal with this as we come to it. So steal yourself and keep me company as we move into the last section. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Oh, good to get that off your chest. And then back onto some safer ground. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, what are we going to do with this? Uh, I know that uh, for some, when I'm preaching, they're looking for a little theological nugget that they can take away and wrestle with. So here it is, the rest of you. So just go into sort of silent mode for a minute or two. Um, well, well uh, I, I share with you something in my reading recently, which I found immensely helpful when you come to these gruesome bits of Old Testament. Oh, by the way, uh, I didn't mention Jesus skips the gruesome verses as well. So that's you know, good practice for those pastors who do it. When in Luke 4, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, the yeah, Spirit of the Lord is upon me, preach good news, bring healing to the sick, set free those who are oppressed. He stops exactly where it gets bloodthirsty. So there's a good precedent for it. But um, a book I've been reading uh, recently called Disarming Scripture by a wonderful man called Derek Flood. Uh, draws upon the writings of a theologian with whom many of you will be familiar, Walter Brueggemann, who's the world's best Old Testament scholar. And what he's talking about is, is this. He's talking about how there being a, a progressive movement within Scripture. Now, for some of you, your heresy senses are already starting to flash. So let, let me explain this. Uh, the Old Testament would not be complete without Jesus. So the story of what God has done for us in Scripture does unfold. Um, and what he suggests is this, that there is in Scripture an unfolding revelation in some areas, and we need to see what the trajectory of that teaching is. So let me substantiate that in the hope that will help you. Um, Brueggemann says in the Old Testament there are two parallel lines of thinking. One of them is the line of unquestioning obedience to what the law says and the inevitable results that are going to follow it. So the good are blessed and the bad are punished. It's there in um, the blessings and curses that Moses gives at the end of uh, Deuteronomy, speaking the words of God. Um, and, and it's there in this whole idea that if you live a good life, you'll be okay. If you live a bad life, you'll be punished. But also in the Old Testament, is a separate stream uh, which uh, Derek Flood refers to as faithful questioning. So, for example, the whole of the book of Job takes that basic concept, good do okay, bad get squidged, and, and, and Job says, no, no, it, it, it's not that simple. I've not lived a dreadfully bad life. The psalmist, speaking the words given to him by God, says, I hate, I loathe your sacrifices. Who commanded the sacrifices? God. So there is a questioning that comes through the Old Testament. And what Derek Flood does is he carries this into the New Testament. And he finds that Jesus actually contradicts the idea that good means blessing, bad means suffering. 
When he's asked, what about those people who were killed when the tower at Siloam fell over? He says, it wasn't their fault. He is contradicting this basic teaching. And that means the trajectory of our Christian life is this, that we are entering into a blessed life which includes suffering. I'm sorry if they didn't tell you that when you signed up, but this is part of the reality. We're blessed by God and bad things happen. So if you follow across this pattern again, you find in the Old Testament a cultural norm of violence and retribution. No wonder the psalmist comes out with this. But the Old Testament story is modified with caution and restraint. So, for example, the verse about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not telling you what you're allowed to do. It's actually limiting what you do to something at the same level as what you have suffered. Then Jesus contradicts all of this by talking passionately about enemy love. And he talks about absorbing violence instead of retaliating. Wonderful old man of God I toured with for six weeks back in the, oh, let me think, mid-1970s, a guy called Barry Maguire, who uh, was famous for Eve of Destruction, for those who are into retro music, and sang with the Mamas and the Papas, McGuinn and Maguire, they're still getting higher, that's my friend, friend Barry. He used to say, every time somebody throws something at you, you can either bounce it back with twice the energy, or absorb it, and the follower of Jesus absorbs it. So we absorb violence instead of retaliating. And this principle of trajectory, just very quickly to underline it, it's there in terms of slavery. The Old Testament assumes slavery. The New Testament moderates slavery. We look at the trajectory of Scripture and we reject slavery. And this church has taken a very active part in fighting modern trafficking and slavery. The Old Testament does not give women priestly roles. In the New Testament, Jesus honors the women who follow him. Uh, Paul, in the early church, recognizes female apostles and leaders and the amazing deacon Phoebe, after whom our puppy has been named. Uh, and so we then move on to uh, our, our puppy. I, Reuben's going to be a great leader, and so's our puppy, I'm sure. It's, it's, it's going to happen. Um, uh, and so we come, most of us, some people have genuine questions over it, but most of us are happy with women leaders. Here's another interesting one. What about beating your children? I'm not suggesting it as a hypothetical example, preacher's rhetoric. Um, but in the Old Testament, it says, spare the rod and spoil the child. In the New Testament, at the end of Hebrews, it said, God loves those whom he disciplines or chastises. But here's the trick. Look at the Greek. The word means whips, because people whipped their children in order to instill discipline in them. Ruth Graham, in her biography, said there were times when she saw Billy take a belt to their children and she had to turn away to hide her tears, but she knew that the Bible commanded that you had to beat your children. Most of us today would say that's abuse. So we follow the trajectory of Scripture. So as we begin to circle the airport and land, um, we find here the integrity of God, not the disruption we might encounter. The psalmist is expressing how he feels, and God's cool with that. Now, you can tell God exactly what you feel, because you know what? It's not going to surprise him. Now, if you subscribe to the idea that a sudden prayer makes God jump, then you're not actually fully understanding how it is that God ticks. He knows it all anyway. So these verses don't commend anger, they commend expressing it. 
And of course, the psalmist is so angry about these enemies because they are offending against the wonder of who God is. And by the time these six verses finish, the psalmist has recognized his own weakness. So for those of us who are Jesus followers, guess what? We have freedom to express to God how we feel. You can say to God, yeah, this sucks. Actually, I've, I've said in the past to our, to our own leaders, when we give testimonies here, yeah, roll up the people who are going to come up and say, for the last year, my life has absolutely sucked and nothing I've prayed for has happened, but God has been there with me. So we express how we feel. We are willing to defend God. And all through this, we say to God, come and search me. So which of the two categories do you fall into? Uh, I'm guessing for a handful of people here, you are on your path of seeking towards God. Uh, I hope you might begin to glimpse that the wonderful intimacy of God for us is so much more wonderful and deeper than what we have sometimes been taught is the nature of faith. I hope you can appreciate that God's presence in every part of the world, in every part of time, is not a threat, but a security. I hope you begin to understand better that your Father loves you, loves you, loves you, loves you, loves you, more than you can possibly understand. Even when you beat yourself up about your failings, as we often do, your Father's heart for you is love. Remember that picture of the running father, forget the prodigal son, the running father going to embrace the child who's coming home. And understand as well that God cannot be caught out with tricks in terms of bits that are good and bad. God shows integrity. And as we follow him, we follow him as best we can in that relationship of intimacy. As best we can, acknowledging how he is in every part of our worlds. Acknowledging that for some strange reason, he loves even me. And his ways are good ways. If you're able, would you like to stand? And Father, uh, as we have explored together your word in Scripture, we now invite the presence and activity of your Spirit that you might root your truths, your call, your voice, your speaking into our hearts and our minds and our living. In Jesus' name. And try and... Just tune in to hear what the Father may say to you. Gareth will help us to focus and unpack that. And Father, we welcome your Spirit's work and presence. Come, Holy Spirit. I wonder for you, what would be the one thing the Lord may be speaking to you about this morning. There's invitation in God's word this morning for intimacy, of relationship. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, there's an invitation for greater intimacy. I wonder if you're someone this morning who is, if you're honest in your own spiritual journey, you've plateaued. 
Maybe you feel that you're stuck. Maybe you feel that, you know, you've just, you're just not moving forward. The Lord is here and he's inviting for greater intimacy. If you're here this morning and you don't know the Jesus that we've been worshipping this morning, then his invitation to you is to come. Come to know him. Invite him into your life. And if you're someone here this morning who's not yet a follower of Jesus, you don't really know what that means, then in a moment I want to give you an opportunity to say yes to Jesus, to invite him into your life. What is the Lord's invitation to you? Welcome your presence, Holy Spirit. Just encourages it just in this moment if we might close our eyes, help us to focus on Jesus perhaps. And um, as we've got our eyes closed, if you are here this morning and you know that you've not said yes to Jesus to make that commitment to follow him with your life, to give him your all, to invite his presence and his power and his guiding and his leading to your life then why don't you say yes to him this morning I'm going to offer a simple prayer and if that's you this morning and you know you need to say yes to Jesus why don't you say this prayer in the quiet of your own heart I'll say it slowly and line by line and why don't you say it in the quiet of your heart after me Heavenly Father I thank you that you love me I thank you that you sent Jesus to die for me on the cross. I thank you that Jesus has taken away my sin. And I ask for your forgiveness. For living my life my way. Help me to live my life your way. Come into my life, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit and fill me with new life. Amen. Just as we've got our eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer for the first time or you felt you needed to say it again um, for yourself today as a recommitment, as we've got our eyes closed, if I could just ask you to put your hand up just so that I know, that'd be great. Thank you. Thank you. Those of you that put your hands up, I'd love to invite you to come forward to, for prayer in a moment. But I'd also like to invite, we don't have to go and pick children up for a good five minutes yet. But if you know, if you're here this morning and you are longing for a greater intimacy with God, why don't you come? You're longing for a greater intimacy with God, why don't you come? Just come now. And if you're here this morning and you know you need to make a fresh commitment to Jesus, why don't you come now also? That would be wonderful. Just come.
you're up on the balconies, just come down the steps. Just come. Thank you. And if one or two could come and pray, that would be wonderful. Some of the family could come now and pray, that would be great. If you're here this morning and you're sick or unwell, we'd love to pray for you for God's healing power. So if that's you this morning, you're sick or unwell in any way, why don't you also come to the front that we might pray for you. The reason we ask people to come to the front is it's just a a little bit more space but it's also an encouragement to step out in faith trusting the Lord if one or two others could come and pray please thank you Jesus, Jesus, Jesus we welcome your presence Lord I don't know if anyone has um, been experiencing deafness in their right ear Anyone got deafness in your right ear? I wonder if we could pray for that, for healing. That would be great. Yeah, come on. If you've got deafness in your right ear, if you could come forward. I want to pray for that. If we could have a couple of people to come and pray for healing. Come on, church. If you love Jesus and you, therefore you love people, you can't not pray for people for healing. Just come. Just invite you to come and just lay on a hand. We have authority in the name of Jesus to speak for healing. Holy Spirit, pray that you'd release your healing power in this place. Holy Spirit, come, release your healing power in this place. Holy Spirit, if we could have a couple more people to come and pray, that'd be great. Thanks, Keith. Thanks, Jean. Dave, can you come and pray? Is that right? Thank you. If you're new and you're visiting us, um, we're so pleased that you're here. Um, we tend to have um, sort of messy ends to our mornings, giving space for prayer ministry which is the ministry of Jesus and um, something that we firmly believe in in this church the ministry of prayer and praying for healing and for freedom for empowering of the spirit's presence we're going to explore a little bit more in the autumn term more teaching on that because we we think we've lost a little bit of momentum on that um, so look out for that We're going to continue to pray here at the front. And if you've not come forward and you would like prayer, then I'd invite you to do so. I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing as we go. Father, thank you for your presence with us. Father, thank you that you love us, that we are your children, that we are your family. And Lord, I pray that as we go, we would go with the confidence that you are with us, that you have a purpose and a plan for each and of our each and every one of our lives 
and that this week you want to work in and through us for your glory. So Holy Spirit, would you bless us, would you watch over us, and would you keep us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Just to say there's tea and coffee being served over the road at Trinity House. Don't feel you need to go, but feel free to stay here if you'd like as the musicians play.